Some announcements here before we uh, move on. Uh, we do need, uh, every Thursday, communion servers. And so on that back table back there, Steffi, you usually run this. Uh, please, go back, sign up. We need some of you to be communion servers. Also, I want to talk about this next, uh, well, actually, this Friday. This Friday is were women ever rising every day. Women ever rising every day. That's for women. Guys, sorry. So here's what's happening. Friday, 7 o'clock, right here, right, Steffi? I know that Mindy, Olivia, I think uh, somebody, Emily from Jubilation, they have been working on this evening, starting at 7 o'clock for you ladies to be here. There's going to be dance, worship, some encouraging words, I'm sure, some uh, uh, prayer, some laughter, some challenge. So if you're a lady, this Friday, the Word Conference, one night right here. Also, I want to make an announcement. Um, we're good. I want to make an announcement. We thought we might have a slide, but we're good. Uh, this Monday night at 7 o'clock, this is the weekend and then Monday, 7 o'clock, all day here actually, is going to be a, a man named Andrew Marin. He was here maybe six, seven years ago, Mindy. Uh, he'd written a book called Love is an Orientation. Uh, his lecture is entitled Reconciliation and Building Bridges LGBT persons and the church. And I want you to know something about uh, Andrew Marin. Um, read his books. He was here some years back. He's a follower of Christ. He's just released a new book called Us Versus Them. And uh, Marin has done some, or what is it called? Oh, <laughs> that actually makes the book sound a lot better, doesn't it? <laughs> and he's building huge walls between people. So come. Lord, but here's what's, okay, well, that was humorous. So, yeah, we're, we're loose, we're good. Yeah, I'll just stay up here for a while. Uh, well, here's, here's what's cool. He's done incredible work in the LBGTQ community, has been working in Boys Town, which is the first, what we call, like, gay village that the United States ever identified where people were living and he uh, started a foundation. Listen to this foundation. Here's the goal. The goal of this foundation, the Marin Foundation, is to build bridges between the LGBT community and social, theological, and political conservatives. And he has an, he's an incredibly engaging speaker, and I think he'll open us up in some very provocative ways. So 7 o'clock over at the Robinson Teaching in, uh, Theater in Weyerhaeuser, Andrew Marin's going to be here on Monday. Mark that down. Whew. Let's pray. God, we uh, acknowledge that you are the Lord, not only of us individually, but of nations and governments. And we thank you for the privilege, uh, as we think about this day, of being able to organize ourselves politically. And knowing that political loyalty does not have to mean disloyalty to you. Lord, this is a confusing time in politics. In so many ways, we are glad that after today, all that campaigning and protests and debates are finally over. We have been bombarded, and it's been hard. So, Lord, we pray that in these days we may be awakened. Help us realize that while politics is not our salvation, our response to you requires that we be politically active. Help us not to shut down, 
Help me not to shut down and quit and disengage after today's results. Help us to remember that as followers of you, our call is to be part of bringing your kingdom to earth. Our call is to work at ushering in your shalom in which our highest hope would be the flourishing of all things and all people. And that involves our politics. So help us not to shut down. Awaken your people to know that they are not called to be a clique, a faction, fleeing the world circled up in holy huddles, but rather a community of faith renewing the world. Awaken your people to a commitment to justice, to the sanctity of marriage and family, to the dignity of each individual human life. Lord, we rejoice today that we are citizens of your kingdom. May that make us all the more committed to being faithful citizens of this earth. And so, Lord, we ask you to be with our friend Mindy as she comes and shares with us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. All right, we are still in Luke, and uh, let's just dive right in here. Luke 7, verses 18 to 23. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Once upon a time, there was a, a man named John the Baptist. It's interesting to come upon this text and recognize that A, John the Baptist is in jail, and that John the Baptist is questioning who this Jesus is. We know a ton about John the Baptist. So here are some reminders. Remember the story early on, think about Christmas time, where we always hear about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the angel comes to Zechariah, an old, old man who has an old, old, barren wife. And he says, guess what? Your wife is going to have a baby. And Zechariah says, how can this be? And Gabriel looks at him and says, because you didn't believe what I've just proclaimed to you, you will have no speech for the entire nine months that Elizabeth is pregnant. So Zechariah goes mute, and Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Okay? <laughs> then Gabriel continues on his journey, and who does he go to? Mary. Mary, the young virgin. And what does he say to Mary? You will have a baby. And she says, how can this be? And he says, just trust me. You will. You'll have a baby. 
So now Mary is pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant. Mary goes to see Elizabeth. And when she enters into her presence, the scripture says that the baby in Elizabeth's stomach jumps with joy. That The Holy Spirit is upon them. This is anointed. Then they go on to prophesy that this will be John, the prophet. He will be like Elijah. They said he won't have strong drink. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Many of the children of Israel will come to the Lord through the power of the prophet Elijah that's coming to John, who's going to prepare all of this. John the Baptist, from the beginning, was anointed to be the main messenger of Jesus the Christ. His whole identity was given to him by this angel. So then Elizabeth has John the Baptist, and suddenly Zechariah can speak. And he names him John, even though the family didn't want to name him John. He said, believe me, we got to name him John. I do know that. we got to name him John. And so they pray over him, and Zechariah has this incredible prayer that he gives. And Mary has Jesus, and there they are together. And they're growing up together. And don't you think everybody in the town remembers this? That John the Baptist was anointed by Gabriel and Jesus, and all these things are going to happen? So then there's a long pause. We don't hear much about their childhood, about them running around together, about Jesus getting in trouble at the temple. Who knows what they were talking about as they were raised. But John goes off, and he's gone for a long, long time, and then he shows up, and he's got this crazy outfit on. There's camel hair, and he is talking about he only eats locusts and honey. He's strange. He's out in the wilderness preparing for this incredible revolution that he has been anointed with from the beginning. And John comes out swinging, right? He's coming out. He's going, you brood of vipers. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And they're coming to him. These people are coming in droves. And they're like, are you the Messiah? And he said, absolutely not. I can't even untie that guy's shoes. There's no way. But you got to prepare. He's coming. John is living into his identity. This is it. Whoa. John had this vision of what Christ was going to do. And it's going to be big, people. It's going to be huge. Then Jesus shows up. And he comes to John. And he says, I need you to baptize me. And John goes, no, 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 no. You baptize me. Jesus says, I need you to, nope, I need you to trust me. I need you to baptize me. So John agrees. They're in the river. John baptizes him. The spirit of the Lord comes down like a dove and the heavens open. And the Lord says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Lest we not forget that John the Baptist was standing there in the river with him when God above spoke it to be true. Can you imagine what John the Baptist must have thought after that moment was over? Oh, here we go. Here we go, Jesus. We are going to rock this, right? Can you imagine? He is pumped. We are going to come down with our winnowing forks and we're going to clear these threshing floors and we're going to burn up these barns and we're going to get these people back to be the righteous people that they're meant to be. I know who I am. God knows who you are. Let's go. 
And then Herod puts him in jail. He's done. Done. Herod's like, freaking me out? You're out. So John's sitting in jail, and he's thinking about his whole life. This life of angels and prophecy and God speaking so clearly. What's Jesus doing? He's heard nothing. What is he doing? Where's the revolution? I am his campaign manager. This is the time to get the people to vote, and Jesus is not moving fast enough. What is he doing? I've spent my whole life committed to this guy. I've been obedient, and now I'm in jail. I'm literally trapped. I don't even know who this guy is anymore. Is this a joke? Was that whole thing a joke? So he tells his disciples, would you go and ask him? Because I don't know anymore. Are you the one? Are you the one? I actually hear this phrase quite a lot working with college students because they're all, so many of you, not all, are longing to know, am I going to find the one? I have, a, I have a, a pastor friend that works with college students, and he said 80% of the students that he's working with are looking for the one. Who is the one? And I'm not exactly sure where this sentiment came from, but it's this idea that God has prepared the perfect person for you, the one that will take all the pain away, the one that will complete me, the one who will be my love partner and companion for all time. The one who will save me from all loneliness, despair, and heartache. So I like you, and I'm going to move you out of the friend zone. But then we need to have a DTR in order to define, are we dating, are we serious, and are you the one? Are you going to fill my life with meaning is really the question that we're asking, right? We messiahify romantic love. Notice John says, are we to wait for you or are we to wait for another? Because if it's not you, then somebody else is going to fill the need that I have. Somebody else then will fill my life with meaning. I'm going to keep looking because I have a hole in my heart that needs to be filled because we're all searching for a Messiah. And when hardship comes, when pain or crisis comes in, When Jesus doesn't quite produce what we thought, we begin to look elsewhere. I signed up with a life for a life with you, but maybe you're not the one. Perhaps that's why the divorce rate is so high. I thought you were the one, but you're not really living into what I thought you were supposed to be. Come on, Jesus, you were supposed to rock this. John said he's the strong one. He's going to come in strength and bring judgment. And we're going to start a revolution. And Jesus is moving pretty dang slow. He was nothing like that. He kept surrounding himself 
with weak people. One at a time, by the way, not in masses. He would stop one at a time for individuals. Go ask him, are you really the one? Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Jesus loves weak people. He loves lame people. He loves desperate people. He loves beggars. Blessed are the poor, he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And by the way, if he had come to bring judgment, not one of us would be standing here. There would be nobody left. So the disciples go back and they tell John, and I wonder if John says anything, or if he just sat there in jail and started to take it all in. So this is how it was all supposed to go down. How easy it is to just rip on John at this point, right? He's supposed to be this tower of strength and faith. He had all the credentials. He had the upbringing. Shouldn't he be the strongest in his faith? How could he have gotten Jesus so wrong? If John the Baptist doubted, then we all should doubt at some point, my friends. <clears throat> it made me wonder about what does a person of strong faith actually look like? Is it a person who never wavers? who never doubts, who never has a worry? Or do we have it all wrong? Is that strong faith? John was chosen before he was born to be the voice in the wilderness, preparing a way. And after this interaction, Jesus looked at those disciples and he said, by the way, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater. The one who has just doubted him. Jesus said, he's the greatest. Maybe because our strength in our faith comes through weakness. As Christ continues to move toward the weak people, God somehow is being glorified. And the revolution is slowly starting. We rely on our faith the most, most often when we feel like we're drowning or we're trapped, or things aren't going our way, and we start to question, who are you anyway? In the summer of 2005, I spent the summer as a hospital chaplain. It was part of the ordination process that you go through, that pastors in training are to go into the hospital and try to learn how to stand with and minister to those that are broken and struggling and are in pain in the hospital. And I was sent to Harborview Medical Center, which is one of the, it's called the Trauma One Center, which means that the most difficult situations will get flown into Harborview because that medical center is a trauma place that knows how to handle it. So the first night I was on call, I was terrified. I was getting queasy every day just walking through the hospital but I had to be put on call, and my only prayer to the Lord God Almighty was, please do not send me to the eighth floor. Because the eighth floor was plastic surgery unit and the burn unit, and I just knew I'm not going to be any good for you up there. I'm not going to be able to help. I'm going to be too terrified. And so about 8 o'clock, wouldn't you guess, I get a call from a nurse. I'm up on the eighth floor. 
okay. <laughs> I've got somebody who's, who's wanting a chaplain. They're calling for a chaplain. And I said, great. Um, okay. So I tried to beef, beef myself up, boost myself up. I tried to pace a little bit. And I look at his record, and it looks like it's a suicide attempt. And he had survived it. He had actually put a gun to his mouth and slipped. So he had le it had left him disfigured, but it left his lower half of his body still able to move. I was terrified. I remember standing in the elevator and watching the lights change as I got closer and closer and closer to the eighth floor. I remember completely shaking, and I walked into the nurse. She goes, oh, yeah, come on back, like it was no big deal to her. And I remember just praying for help, and we walked in, and the nurse had her hand on the curtain, and as she moved it, she yelled, the chaplain's here! And I remember looking behind me going, oh, thank God. <laughs> Woo! And she looked at me as if, and I thought, oh, it's me. And I looked at, upon this man, and he was writing. His face was completely disfigured. He couldn't see. He couldn't hear. He had no idea of who I was, of my credentials, of anything. But he only knew that I was a chaplain, that I was called to stand before the presence of God on his behalf. And he was writing on a pad of paper, pray, pray, pray. And he threw the pad, and he reached out his hands, and I swear they were shaking like this. And I grabbed his hands. And I started to pray, and his whole body completely and totally went calm. And in that moment, in the crisis of the pain, God was glorified. God was glorified. Jesus Christ continues to go into these desperate places where people are hungry and broken and begging for food. And when he enters Close to them, God is glorified. Are you the one? If this is a question you are asking, I would ask you back, who are you waiting for? Are you waiting for someone who's going to make your life easy? Who's going to make your life comfortable? Who's going to bring fire and judgment to everybody else? My friends, Jesus Christ does not invite you to an easy life. He invites you to a meaningful life. He doesn't remove all the pain of our lives. He is in the pain of our lives. And the invitation he has for all of us is to move closer into it. Because when I think about when I've seen God, I think about that hospital room. And I think about those desperate, broken, hard times where we stand on behalf of Jesus the Christ. And God himself is glorified. Our longing is for a Messiah, for the one, for a Savior, our longing is for meaning. Who are you looking for? Is Jesus the one? In the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, amen.